If you have a Bible and you'll read where we're going to take a scripture reading, I want to really encourage you to this morning as we're going to walk through this text uh, largely verse by verse, at least part of the chapter. Uh, We're going to take a reading from the book of Romans chapter 14. Book of Romans chapter 14. I'm going to begin this morning by reading the entirety of the chapter. And uh, I hope this morning as we work through this at least... um, Discuss the things between verses 1 and 19, if we can, uh, today. Pray that the Lord will help me to speak, that it would be for your benefit this morning. That's certainly my desire today. Romans chapter 14, begin in verse 1. And before we jump into our reading today, um, I want to just give a very, very brief context to where we're coming into so we know. Um, and Ch- Paul writes in a very clear style. You can usually see Paul's style very clearly. And one of the ways that he writes, we've talked about uh, before, is indicatives and imperatives, which means he indicates a truth. It's somewhat abstract. He spends a lot of time discussing that. And then he has a pivot, and he really changes to now the application. In lieu of these truths, what should we do? How should we live? How should we believe in lieu of these things? And so Paul has done that in Romans 1 through 11. He's pivoted in chapter 12. And he has set a framework, I believe, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 for what he's going to discuss through the remainder of this book, largely until chapter 16, where he does greetings and farewells. And so um, in chapter 12, he has laid out this framework. You've probably heard this text very often. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world. And it goes on. He's, he's teaching us, or he's telling us, I'm begging you now, in lieu of this truth, this is how you ought to lay down your life. And he's going to give us what we do, how we do that. And so in chapter 12, he begins by talking about spiritual gifts that God has given to the church. The remainder of chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, he just gives us a list of the attitudes and virtues very succinctly that we ought to display. Rejoicing in the truth, loving one another always. There's all these lists of things. He goes into chapter 13, and the main part of that chapter is discussing Here is how you ought to interact with civil authorities, with the government. He comes into chapter 14, where we're going to pick up this morning, and he's talking about a topic that I would say is a a hot topic in our day, and that is judging each other. And that's what, if you say anything that's offensive to anybody today, that's what you're going to hear. Who are you to judge? Or you can't judge me. And the title of our message this morning is, Who Are You to Judge? And the reason is because Paul says that twice in Romans 14. But what we don't want to do is give it the cultural identity that that phrase has been given versus what Paul means by this. Because when our culture says this, Generally, it arises from a place of, I don't want to feel bad that you are saying things or thinking things harshly about me. Thus, the key or the driver is trying to protect people from feeling bad. And that is not at all what Paul is after in Romans 14. It is not that we don't judge one another because of our feelings. Now, maybe there is a place for that. But that's not what Paul is driving at this morning. It's not, I want you to feel good, thus don't judge. Another necessary context in Romans 14 before we jump into it. He's speaking to Christians. That's really important. And I want you to think about that. As we go through this text... There is certainly some application that we could make universally in these truths that we're going to draw from this. But Paul is talking about among us. Within his body, this is what we should not do. 
And when we get to verse 18 and 19, I want you to take particular notice of verse 18 and 19, because I think Paul there expresses the primary result of us following this command in Romans 14. So if I didn't confuse you with this introduction, we're going to start in Romans 14, uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. It says this, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. What that means is not to quarrel over his opinion. So if he disagrees with you on minor things, don't receive him so that you can then just try to correct him. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another, who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he should be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and give thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die... We are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be greed with thy meat... Now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after It means to pursue. I want to give a little weight to that in the original. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine or anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And that will conclude our reading this morning. And um, if I made some mistakes there, I apologize. Again, the title of our message this morning is, Who Are You to Judge? And before we begin in verse 1, I want to draw your attention to verse 18 and 19. Because I think, as we read through this, we're going to see that this is where Paul is trying to get us as a church. This is the relationship, this is the provoking among one another that he's wanting. Listen to verse 18. For he that in these things serveth Christ, serveth Christ, So I want to stop for a moment. So whatever he has said before this, 
He's saying, if you serve Christ like this, what I've just explained, then you are acceptable to God and approved by men. Let us, therefore, so if we're seeking to be accepted by God, and I think when he says men here, he's talking about the brothers, us. If we want to be accepted by God and in in good fellowship and approved by men, one another, then we need to pursue these things which make for peace and which edify one another. Okay, so... Whatever he is saying here, what he's wanting to get get us to is that final point. So let's see what he's doing here in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verses 1 through 3. So the first way that he introduces this topic is he says, If there is someone among you who wants to be part of you, the way I understand that is they're wanting to join your church, they're wanting to be part of your body, but they're weak, is the word he uses here. Now, what he's talking about is someone who does not have a full enough understanding of God's word in certain areas. He says, don't allow them to become part of your church so you can try to change them. Where the first thing that you do when they come in is try to get them all the little differences that you might have in your belief system. And I'm not talking about significant doctrinal differences, but there may be some things where you differ. Don't bring them in to try and change them. And then he, he continues by using two examples, which at that time there was differences in, in the church. And so the first one is obviously referencing a largely Jewish congregation and some people still looked at certain meats as unclean and they were hesitant despite what Peter experienced with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 they're hesitant that God really made that unclean that they're not breaking God's law that they're not somehow transgressing and so because of that fear He even goes to an extreme here. Not people who just don't eat anything unclean, but people who are so extreme in this thought, all they'll eat are vegetables because they do not want to transgress God's law about eating anything unclean. He says, so on one hand, you have some who only eat vegetables and they're convicted about that in their conscience. That's what their conscience tells them they ought to do. Another man, and Paul is going to reveal himself as one of these, I feel like it's okay to eat anything. And Jesus Christ has revealed that to me is what Paul says later on. So one example that he uses is something in this day that was somewhat controversial. Another one, it seems implied here when he gets to verse 5, or excuse me, verses 5 and 6, about the reverencing of a day. So to me, the implication is still those Jews who celebrated certain feasts. So you have even Messianic Jews today who will celebrate Purim, deriving from the time of Esther. And there are other things that they will do, and they'll acknowledge in our day Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and that all must repent and believe in him, But there are still certain aspects of the old Jewish customs and laws that they still attend to. And Paul is using that as a second example. There are some people who regard a day highly, and there are others who look at every day as though they're the same. And so he's teaching us here that there are certain issues which we ought not to be in conflict about. Now I want to pause for a moment and say this. That does not mean that everything we believe in practice is up to each of our consciences. There are some things that are explicit commandments. And we do not have the luxury, you might say, to pick and choose, I want to believe this, but I don't want to believe this. And that's something today, and we could turn there, and I'm not going to, but if you look in Galatians chapter 5, whenever Paul begins to describe the works of the flesh opposed to the works of the Spirit, and he gives us a long list there of things that are works of the, of the flesh. They're sinful. 
They're to be condemned. We ought not to practice those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6, in chapter 5, he finds a man who's caught in a terrible form of adultery. And in chapter 6, he continues the thought by listing out there a list of sins of people who ought not to be a part of the Lord's church if they practice those things. That's not something where if you're practicing those things, that you have the luxury to come before God's body or go to the Lord and say, well, it's just a difference in conscience. I'm just not pricked in my conscience about this sin. We can't do that. Adultery is sin. There are certain immoralities which God explicitly in his word denounces as sinful. And so this morning, I don't want us to think that Paul is trying to express to us that there is this large gray area and everything that the Bible teaches and everything we experience is in this gray area. And what it really determines is, are you conflicted by it? And if I'm not conflicted by it, then we can just live different lives because that is the notion that the world is projecting today. Your truth is yours. My truth is mine. That is not right. God is the only one that sets the standard of truth. There are things, however, that people in their conscience, and I'm going to give a modern example that often happens within a Christian church for you to think about and consider within the context of what Paul is teaching here. And that is the celebration of what's called Christian holidays. No doubt you have met people in your life who are professing Christians and they are extremely opposed to the celebration of Christmas. They're extremely opposed to celebrating Easter in the fashion that it is often done. And they feel very strongly about that. Well, from what I can find, there's nowhere in the scriptures that teach us explicitly, yes, we should as a commandment, or no, we shouldn't as a commandment. And so to me, this falls very cleanly into Romans 14 here. And I want us to really get at the heart of what Paul is teaching because there's a reality that today, if you are radically opposed to celebrating Christmas as traditionally done in America and in your and somebody else's home in this church, there is somebody and you are you are enthusiastically for it and your house on On October 31st, you get up and you decorate your whole house after Halloween and you make sure that everything is ready for Christmas. I want you to know that what Paul is driving for is that both people can worship in the same church and actually by the way they conduct themselves about those two issues, edify and build up one another. Too often today, the idea of unity in the Lord's body is that we never disagree, and that is wrong. We are going to have disagreement. And yet, Paul is telling us here, when we do, this is the way that our attitudes and thoughts ought to be in the midst of our disagreement. So, Here's what he's teaching. He's saying here in verse 4 and 5 and 6, people, he gives these two examples. People eating certain foods as well as people worshiping or honoring certain days. Now, if you look, and let's begin in the middle of verse 6. And I really want to read where it says, He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. I feel like this is a really important, from verses 6 all the way down to verse 13, as I read this, I'm going to put an emphasis on the pronouns and the proper nouns. That's what helped me to understand this. Because what he is trying to place before us today is that you and I do not have a right in those areas of uncertainty to be judgmental and critical of one another. And the reason is because God is ultimately each of our judges, not one another. So notice this in the middle of verse 6, he says this, He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, 
for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. I want to pause there for a moment and point out kind of how humorous that this is. So let's say that somebody here is one of Santa's elves, right? They, they love to celebrate Christmas. And everything about their life from Black Friday onward is all about Christmas. And when they're putting up their lights and when they're putting up their tree, truly in their heart, their heart is not set after the cultural evolution of Christmas, but that truly they're grateful and their mind is naturally gravitated towards Christ, what he has done, his incarnation. And they love that, that spirit, I guess you would say, whatever you want to call it, that attitude that our culture has adopted. But their mind is focused. And as they're doing this, as Paul says, they're giving thanks to God. And they're offering this attitude and these actions as a form of worship to God. So take that person. Now let's take Ebenezer Scrooge, right? On the other side, somebody who is ardently opposed to it. But the reason why they're ardently opposed is because they feel as though it dishonors God. They, they seem and they look at the way our culture has spun Christmas and they abhor it and they think it's dishonoring of God. And so the reason why they are looked down upon perhaps by others, the reason why their kids are disappointed, the reason why all of those things, they're doing those things and in the midst of doing that, they're doing it to honor God. That's what he's talking about. Isn't it ironic that somebody on one extreme is doing it to honor God and somebody on the other extreme is doing the exact same thing? And Paul is not saying, well, then we just need to come together, have a powwow and figure this out. He's advocating to us that they can both do that. And here's the reason why. God is ultimately who they're accountable to, not you and I. Let's keep reading here in verse 7. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So, hold on to that thought in verse 8. Put your finger on verse 8. Remember in verse 4, he told us, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? So let's... Reconsider this whole visual here. If I am an employee of a certain employer, and they have contracted me, and they have assigned me duties, and I am responsible ultimately to them, why does it matter what every other employer in the world thinks about my work? Because ultimately, I am accountable to the one Who's my master? Paul lays out in verses 8 through 10, he's emphasizing this point. You are not your own. God has bought you. He owns you. He is your master. And so, if I, in my attempt to honor God, am celebrating Christmas with my children... In an attempt to honor God, it is him who I have to please. So let me ask this. Let's say that somebody else in my circle of influence is harshly critical of me. And generally there is an attitude. There are remarks. There are, in this day, unfortunately, passive-aggressive social media posts. There are all sorts of ways... That even Christian people can make it clear to one another, I really disapprove of what you're doing. No doubt you've been on the receiving end of that at times. Where you think what you are doing is honoring the Lord. And you're trying to do that. And then another brother or sister's thoughts, opinions, judgment 
criticisms, you become aware of that. Well, what does it do to you? Well, Paul addresses that in verse 13. It becomes a stumbling block. I was worshiping the Lord fine when he was my master and I was doing it to honor him. And then unfortunately, a brother or sister began to do that and it became a significant stumbling block. And now, as I sit there and I tell my children the Christmas story and as I, I can't honor and worship Christ with the same clarity of mind and diligence of heart as what I formerly was. Let me ask you the question. Let's not consider it from the angle of the person who is being impeded. Let's ask you this question. Have you ever been the other person? Have you ever been the person highly critical of something that in the end doesn't really matter? And you know, perhaps within your small circle of influence, perhaps within your family, that your opinion has been a stumbling block to them. That's something that needs to be repented of and perhaps repented to the person about. Because listen, there is enough stumbling blocks that that, uh, naturally arise in my own flesh as a result of Satan and as a result of lost people. There are stumbling blocks that arise all the time, daily in my heart and mind. But I will say this, when a stumbling block arises from one of my brothers and sisters it's a little bit higher for me. It's difficult. Why? Because I trust your opinion. I regard you and I respect you. And when somebody whom you have regard and respect for is one being highly judgmental, that often becomes a bigger stumbling block than people whom we know, as could say, don't know better. The Bible gives us the the process that we need to go through if we really think a brother or sister is an error. And that is not to talk about it or be passive aggressive about it. It's to go to the person and say, brother, I think you're stumbling here. Let me try to help you. Let me show you this. But the other mechanism of passively throwing things in front of somebody by putting our opinion out there when we know that they don't agree with that. We know that it's going to cause a stumbling block, rather. It's not the proper way to address it. Paul tells us here, I think we left off in verse 8, he's revealing to us that we are the Lord's. Verse 9, he says this, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. I want you to notice there, Over and over in these verses, he's using the word Lord. He's not saying God. He's not saying Savior. He's not using all the other ways of, excuse me, description of the Lord. He's saying the Lord. Why the term the Lord? Well, it should be obvious because the Lord is our master. That's what it means. He's our master. And so he's saying Christ died and he rose and he revived So that he is your Lord. He's the one to whom you are accountable. Look at verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? Or it just means to look down on him. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now usually this verse and the next two verses are used in terms of towards lost people. That's not the context here. Certainly there's truth. If you're lost this morning, you will stand before God in judgment. But here, he's saying, we as his servants, because he purchased us, because he is our Lord, we will give an account to what we do with holy days, to what we do with eating unclean animals, to what we do with Christmas, to what we do with any of these things. I will give an account to God with that. And so the first thing to note for all of us is that all of our eyes ought to be fixed on what the Lord does and does not approve of. Because truly, 
The opinions of one another ultimately are not going to be used in a final judgment. God's word, God's truth, his judgment is what matters. And so there's a sense. Now, I also don't like the rebellious spirit of people who say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. Again, there can be an accurate statement, but filled with a lot of uh, erroneous concepts that are interwoven into that. I care about what you think as long as what, I th- what you think is what the Lord thinks. So I believe all of you are striving to do what the Lord wants, to honor the Lord. And so if you see something in me that is wrong, I care. I care about that. And if I need to, I want to remedy that. If you say, hey, Brother Brad, the way that you talk sometimes, it's a stumbling block. And here's why I think that is the case. I don't think you realize you're doing it. Or maybe you do realize you're doing it. You need to stop because here's what it's causing. I care about that. I care to hear what you have to say, that you can correct some of the error that I might have in my way. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Galatians chapter 6 that we ought to do that to our brothers. We ought to restore them in a spirit of meekness. And that's speaking of one that falls into sin. But nonetheless, that's even true with someone who is perhaps even unknowingly doing things. Your opinion matters to me. And I hope that the opinion of your brothers and sisters matter to you as well. But not in so much that your mind is focused solely on what people think. Because ultimately... God will be our judge. And let me say this. There is a great freedom that is experiential that you will have when you really grasp this truth and live by it. When you live by the truth, God is ultimately who I am accountable for. And you accept a few things about this fallen world. One, no matter what I do... People are going to judge me. If you are a hermit and you live at your house and you never get around people, people are going to judge you for being a hermit. And if you're the most social, friendly person that is out there, people are going to judge you for what you say in the intents of your heart. And I think today with our social media world amongst young people, one of the greatest dangers I see among young people is this obsession with what other people think. But listen to me, young person today, your friend's opinion is transient. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. What God thinks, what God says is eternally true and right, and you will give an account to the way that you live by it or not. And so you must be concerned. Why is studying God's word important? Well, for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which it is by his word whereby you will be judged. And so don't you think you and I ought to be acquainted with the standard whereby we're going to be judged? Well, praise God, we can be. We can open his word anytime, day or night, and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit to reveal to our hearts and minds the meaning. What does this mean? And Lord, how can I better arrange my life to live by it? What are things that I can do to adhere to it? Listen, there's not much, many more, diff, um, there's not many more dangerous things for a Christian to do than live this life without the guidance of God's word. That's dangerous. Because what it tells me is this. If you're not mindful of his standard and governed by how he is going to judge, then that means you're mindful of and guided by the judgments of your own or somebody else. And the Bible tells me, I don't even... The wickedness of my own sinful heart is seemingly boundless. Here Paul is is telling us, and he even quotes an Old Testament verse to enforce the point. He says in verse 11, For it is written, 
As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. I've always noted here in this verse, every one of us will give an account to God. Whenever that first dawned on me, it was terrifying. The way that I like to look at judgment is God is sitting here on his throne and I stand before him and he just reams me out. That was always the easiest way as a kid to get in trouble. The hardest ones by a coach or by a teacher or by a parent where they wouldn't let me get by with silence. No, explain to me why you did this. To me, that giving an account seems to imply to me there's some talking on my part. And remember, this is written to a body of believers. I'll let you take that and consider it on your own. Let's look at verse 13 because he's going to pivot here. He's going to pivot to the positive side of things. So he's expressed, we should not be bound by what people think because they're not our judge ultimately. And we ought not to judge others because we're not their Lord. Christ died, obtained them. He is their Lord. He has the right to judge. Verse 13, he concludes this thought. He says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. And this is a, perhaps a silly thing to say. Sometimes I just love the way the Bible is written just like this. Don't judge this. Instead, judge this. Now, I'm not a Greek expert. You know this. The word judges in verse 13. There's an implication here, best as I can tell, in verse 13. Let us not, therefore, judge in the sense of condemnation. Condemn one another. But rather, excuse me, but judge this rather. And in verse 13, it seems... As though what he's saying is, determine this rather. So on one, there's a negative sign. Don't criticize this, but rather determine this. And look what he says in the rest of verse 13. That no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. This is such a radical departure from where we started. On one hand, think of it like this. The person, we'll just say me, I'm very judgmental and harsh. And I denunciate you and I look down on you and I'm passive aggressive towards you about some way that you celebrate Christmas, some way that you do something. Okay? We could use it in our, you like more contemporary music. Maybe you like more traditional music. Whatever the example you want to give. And I am just skeptical of it. And then Paul confronts me with this truth. You don't have a right to do that. That's what he's telling me. But here's what you do have a right to do. Are you putting a stumbling block before them? You can judge that. Now, this is the natural thought to me that arises that Paul is implying here in verse 13. How would I put a stumbling block above my brother in this situation? Is it not by being judgmental of him? Isn't that the stumbling block? If you know that I am highly critical of the things that you do. You ever been around somebody that you thought was so highly critical just the way you sat? You thought they would criticize? The way you stood, the way you walked, the way you did anything, the way you spoke. They were just going to, behind closed doors, it felt like a safe assumption. They're just going to make fun of you, talk about it. Paul is saying... If you're going to judge something, determine that you're not going to do this to your brother. Because here is the spirit of all of our hearts where it should be. I want you to worship God and serve him according to what he tells you to do. And I don't want to be any part of that stumbling block in preventing it. Rather, I want to help it. I want to be for you a help in your worship and service to God. And that's where Paul's going with this. So on one hand, he's saying, don't be a stumbling block. And where he's going to get to is, no, edify and help one another to serve the Lord. 
Let's keep reading here. I'm almost done. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded. So he goes back to this example. By the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. I'll confess to you this morning, the application of these next couple of verses takes a lot of wisdom. God has to grant us the wisdom to know what to do in these verses. If I know about you that Christmas is a stumbling block for you, the way that everybody looks at Christmas, and I have this grand idea that we in the church should put up Christmas trees and have Frosty the Snowman everywhere. And, and yet I know all the while that's going to be a significant stumbling block. Not just something you don't like, but to your faith. And I pursue that course of action before you. Here's what he said. You're not walking in love. Love does not consider itself first. Pointed this out once before. COVID restrictions in regards to taking our Lord's Supper. All but a very few were for removing those. I was blessed when the decision of the church was decided with the minority. And you know what? We can extend our COVID protocols for the Lord's Supper another time. Because the last thing that we want is somebody coming to the Lord's table to remember his death, thinking about anything but his death. And so I, I can set aside, I can defer my opinion, what does it matter? Right? He says, do not destroy the work of God over food. That's one of the ironic things in our day, is very, very few times have I seen a church torn apart by doctrine. It's almost always torn apart by petty disagreement. And if we're going to be impassioned about something, let it not be trivial things. Let it not be those things which we say, you know what? I wouldn't do that if it was just me. But it's not just me. And truth be told, if you can take music, if you can sing a more traditional form of music and from your heart, Worship God. I want to use that kind of music because I want you with freedom to worship and praise God with no stumbling block. And at the same time, if I can worship God with songs that are doctrinally true and accurate, but worship God with a more contemporary bend to the the style of them, then don't you want me out of love to worship God freely with no stumbling block and permit me to do that? And can you not be forbearing, which is what is required? A degree of forbearance. It's not my preference. However, I am going to condescend beneath my brother and forbear and allow him. Even if in this case, it is derived from a weaker brother. That's what the whole backdrop of this is. It's somebody who even has incomplete understanding. And Paul is saying, as an apostle, as an author of the New Testament, as someone who has been ministered to by Jesus Christ in the desert myself, I am still willing to defer my enlightened opinion. And that's what he tells us. The Lord Jesus showed me this specifically. And yet, I am not going to let my insistence get in the way of this person's conscience. To me, what we see is Paul, and he doesn't explicitly say this, the most mature Christian humbling himself to what is perceivably an immature Christian so that he is not a stumbling block to him. That is the type of love that the world needs to see within us. Is not just crying in tears and hugging one another at important celebrations and moments. But it's in moments like these where we simply yield ourselves to the service of one another. And we don't even have to talk about it. We don't have to gloat about it. We don't have to go home and say, look at the sacrifice I am making for my brother and sister. We just do it because we love one another. 
Paul's getting at that here in chapter 14, almost done. It says this, let not then your good be evil spoken of. Paul, by eating meat, was doing good. He was doing nothing wrong in what he's doing. But if he was doing it in a way to pierce, in a way to offend, then the good, the truth, is being evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy, Holy Ghost. Last two verses, and then I'm done today. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God. So, again, I just love the way Paul writes here. It's so, it's so powerful here. He says, if you serve God with this attitude, you're acceptable to God. Now, considering that's within the backdrop of him just talking about God being our judge... <laughs> He just told us emphatically, God is going to judge you. And then he turns around a couple verses later and says, but if you serve God with this attitude of heart, you'll be acceptable to God. Isn't that beautiful? So when I stand before God in the judgment, God will accept the way I acted in these things. He will not condemn me for it. And then it goes on to tell us this. And you'll be approved by your brother or by men. I think he's talking about brothers here. It'll make, and he continues in verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. Again, the word there, follow after, is pursue. So we don't just, we don't just hope that my attitudes don't offend you. I don't just say, you know, I am who I am. I might do things you don't like. I hope I at least do it when you don't see it. That's not what he's saying here. Let us pursue things that make, make for peace. So here's a way that you could pursue things that make for peace. I genuinely want to know what your opinion is about this matter. Whatever the matter is. Christmas, whatever. That's just the one we've used this morning. And I listen to you. I don't interrupt. I don't argue. I don't try to push my own opinion about it. I listen to what you have to say. And I take that home and I pray about it. And I seek God's word about it. And I see if there's something that I am doing that could possibly become a stumbling block to you in that area. And if I recognize it, without formally addressing it, without giving my, what I believe to be enlightened opinion... I just pursue not to be a stumbling block to you. Might there be an appropriate hour? I think that's one of the values of our Wednesday nights. That's one of the values of Sunday school is that we can come together. We can bring these topics before the church in a uncharged fashion. Open the word of God and say, does the word say anything about this? And we can be diligent in our search and say, hey, if this has been a stumbling block for you, Here's what I encourage you to do. Tell me. Tell me if there's something that has been a stumbling block to you and then be open to the fact of one of two things. Number one, that you were uninformed. And once being informed, it's no longer a stumbling block to you anymore. Because that's another path that is possible here. Desirable path. Is that there may be things, and I've experienced in my own life and perhaps you have, Something you thought was really wrong, according to the scriptures. Then you were enlightened. And then not only did you not think it was wrong, you started doing it. (laughs) Paul leaves open that possibility here. He says, let us pursue those things that are made for peace. That we might edify one another. Build you up. You know, that's the one thing about the Lord's church. We are not in competition here with one another. I do not need to be forceful in trying to get my way. I do not need to try to angle the vote of a democratic vote. All things which have happened in churches before. Trying to count the vote. You know what is a healthy church? Not a church that just always everybody votes the same. 
I'll tell you what a healthy church can look like. A matter gets brought before the church, and there's a vote, and it's 60-40. And then we move on, and nobody's offended about it. Isn't that healthy? I would say that's a lot of times more healthy than people through guilt or coercion or fear just voting to go along with it. And then behind closed doors, bad-mouthing everybody who is for it. Ultimately, the final warning I'll give you, and then I'm done this morning. This is me speaking here, and I want, I want to make that clear. The closest relationships to me are developed when you know about someone else and they know about you. Behind closed doors, I am your friend. I'm not going to badmouth you. I'm not going to speak ill of you. I'm not going to make fun of you. Behind closed doors, I will speak of you the same way I would if you were here. That's friendship. If you've ever sensed a, at times, division in a friendship, just a slight one, one where you don't feel like you can just fully let down your guard, is it perhaps because there's a suspicion that behind closed doors they might take something you say, something you believe, something you do, judge it and condemn you for it? Now, I think Jonathan and David are a powerful example in the Scriptures that David is putting his life in Jonathan's hands. Even when Jonathan's own father is the one doing the wrong. He trusts him. And look at the result. And look at what happened in David and Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was deprived of the throne. And David ascended to the throne. And yet Jonathan maintained his trust and friendship because not entirely, but in part, his judgment is not, I'm going to now angle whatever is most beneficial for me. He doesn't do that. I pray this morning, this thought, this scripture, as we are going through revival, and I was reading, I read across this text, and it just, Powerfully spoke to me. And I hope this morning, if there's one thing you can take away, it is, you're not anybody's judge, so don't do it. Nobody else is your judge. God is. So feel free to honor Him in accordance with how His conscience dictates to you to do it. That's our message this morning. I pray it would be of some help to you. It has been some help to me to read that and to study that. Um, It has freed my heart in certain areas that perhaps need it. And so I appreciate the Lord's word. I thought of this as I was going through this this week. Where else could I learn such instruction but right here? And where else is this so concisely and powerfully written anywhere but right here in God's word where we can know that it's true? You may have something on your heart this morning, something you'd like to say today.